regardless of what you think, you know, about whether GMO is good or not good for you, we understand that many people feel that it's something that they're wary of. I think the way we look at it, I would divide into a few things. One, I do think things are changing. You look at a lot of the alternative proteins that are trying to get rid of the cow or get rid of, you know, they're often GMOs and people are accepting this for a really important reason, which is because they're also really important for sustainability and saving earth. And you have to say, you know, some entrepreneur once told me that he feels, you know, that UCO is almost like the perfect app for, you know, the ideal case study for something like this new technology, because the human value here is just so clear cut. This is about saving lives and changing people's capability to have accessibility to the world in which we live. Welcome to Fallline Field Notes, a podcast that explores the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Anat Benur, CEO and founder of Tel Aviv-based UCO, a biotech company focused on creating solutions to food allergies and sensitivities. Born in Israel but raised in New York, Anat's path has been anything but conventional. She attended law school in Israel and began her career working for the Israel state attorney, but she soon came back to the States to receive her master's in public policy at Columbia. After doing some political work on the Hill and in the Senate, she founded an education-related nonprofit before getting her PhD from MIT and entering the venture capital space. In our conversation, we explore her unique perspective as an Israeli entrepreneur focused on markets outside of Israel, how UCO is poised to have a real impact on an increasing number of families who struggle with food allergies, and what it means to build an interdisciplinary, innovative team. We begin our interview with Anat sharing how her career trajectory shifted from politics to founding a cutting-edge biotechnology company. I'm kind of an in-between person, professionally speaking, have a really interdisciplinary background. If I laugh, I'm one of those connected dots retrospectively kind of story. So my career started off more in the worlds of policy and law. And then I moved to MIT to do some more school. And I got a PhD that combined behavioral economics and political economy. And I did a few other things along the way. I worked for the World Bank, but actually ended up on what's called the other side of the table. So I started off on the VC side. I was a partner at a fund called Innovation Endeavors. I joined the fund really early, about a year after it was started by Dora Berman and Eric Schmidt from Google, and was there close to five years until I transitioned on my role to start UCO about almost five years ago today. So kind of it was interesting to most people go the other way around. You know, they often start a company and then join a VC. And I went from a VC to starting a company. And it's been a really interesting journey and allowed me, I think, unique perspectives on both aspects of the things. Right. So tell us a bit about UCO and explain kind of the genesis of the idea and then maybe give us a little bit of background on where things are at the moment. Sure. And I think that's critical for us to be able to create things that are really better for everything, for our health and for our environment and, you know, for the world at large. So super in short, UCO is a company that's U.S.-based and Tel Aviv and Israel-based. We're focused on food allergies and sensitivities. And I'll start just by saying, you know, as I described I grew up in New York and in Israel. Just never had a kid in my class with a food allergy or sensitivity. And I'm never, almost never, ever on a call or in a meeting or in the elevator with my neighbors or at a dinner with friends where, you know, I talk about UCO and someone in the room, if not more, doesn't have an allergy in their life somehow or food sensitivity. It's astounding. And actually, the data backs it up. There's been like a 50% rise in kids with food allergy in the past decade alone. And it stands at what, right? 13, 15% now? Somewhere I think it depends on the type of allergy, but you know, it can be anywhere between, for example, 1% to 3% of the population. But remember that the impact goes way beyond the patient. So it's enough to have one kid in the class with a peanut allergy, the entire class is affected, or 
you know, the healthcare's costs are, I think they're estimated something like $25 billion a year just from this. There's, I think, one in every 13 children has a food allergy in a class, and every three minutes, someone goes to the hospital because of a food allergy reaction. So it's pretty massive. Cases of like sensitivity like celiac have doubled every few years. And is it the case that when we were growing up, these allergies were undiagnosed or they didn't exist and something's changed in the environment that has led to much more sensitivity to these allergens? It's a great question. And honestly, no one knows. This field is, it's amazing how despite kind of the growth and the impact it has on all of our lives, there's still a lot of like things are just unknown. There are different hypotheses as to why we're seeing this growth. Some have to do with like hygiene, like that maybe we're over sterilizing our kids. Some are, you know, associated with toxins in the environment or overexposure to food. But, you know, we work with the top, top clinicians and researchers in this field of food allergy and sensitivity. And they will all say that there isn't one key scientifically backed explanation that everyone agrees is the root cause. But, you know, despite this growth, there's just no real solution. Like if you have a sensitivity today or food allergy, the only thing you can do is really avoid the food and walk around with an EpiPen. Or you have some therapies. Um, there's been one therapy that's been approved with FDA, but they're very suboptimal for different reasons. And I think one of the reasons, and Naseka explained how UCO fits in and what we do and why I think it's that interdisciplinary approach that's so important. But one of the reasons is because people have looked at it in like really siloed ways, either what is going on with our immune system, like let's really understand our immune system and then develop drugs, or let's look at the food side, right? And maybe you guys have seen or heard about cases where people try to get rid of the gluten in wheat or kill off allergens and peanuts in different ways. Very cool stuff happening. But in both these camps, like drug, food, still very, very big limitations that don't allow there to be a mass market solution. And one of the reasons, because it's so silent, like we look so separately at like what triggers our body and what happens on the protein. So UCO super in short, we kind of break those silos because we know to go from the body kind of to the food and back to the body. And at the core, we have a platform that combines really unique edge technologies, AI, very advanced protein engineering and immunology, and it allows us to go to a protein, single protein, first at the synthetic level and design it such that we keep all the good qualities and good, it's like biophysical, biochemical, it's stability, functionality, and nutritional value in food and even therapeutic qualities and get rid of the bad qualities. In this case, the bad qualities are the part of the protein that actually trigger an immune response in patients who have these conditions. So at the end of our process, which is long and combines you know, patient samples and lots of other things, you get a protein equal to the wild type in all respects, but will be, and of course, we have to show this in our upcoming clinical trials, but will be safe for anyone with these conditions. And then out of our platform, we have two very different assets talking about that end-to-end holistic approach between food and health. You know, one is literally a drug. We're creating a new therapy for people with food allergy. We're starting with peanut allergy, and then will be the pipeline is really any protein-based allergy eventually. And on the other side, we're really looking at a whole new food approach for people starting with gluten sensitivity, including celiac. We're designing a new gluten. It'll be equal to regular gluten, but safe for anyone. That's awesome. And I think one of the things as we have increased our exposure to biotech-related companies and food companies that have high intellectual property content, we are typically looking for platforms that can create a family of products. You know, we have a much harder time getting over the hump on investments in single product companies. 
And I think that's one of the things that we found most unique about Uko, that you have a platform to identify what it is that makes a particular food allergenic to humans. It's a pretty multifaceted platform because not only can you identify these things, you can actually test them. To what extent can you give us a sense for what that platform does? Sure. I'll touch at the end also why I think protein design, which is what we do, is so key for the food or drug industry, but definitely for the food industry if we want to create really high value capture, especially in a food world where we're often looking at commodity type of production, crops, foods, and then it's been so hard over the years to cover costs of innovation. And so when you think about in a sec, I'll explain exactly you know, what we do with the protein design. What it allows us for is really to pick characteristics that we want to design for. And then you can imagine how you create really high value, whether it's, you know, wheat, a new type of wheat, a crop or a protein such that even in a food world, you can cover the cost of innovation and really like bring value across the supply chain. Super quick what we actually do. So in order to design these proteins I described before as being safe, we start with actually patient samples, the body. That's the part where we like first understand and unlock the immune system. So UCO has today one of the biggest, probably clinically validated maps of allergens at an atomic level because we take patient samples from all over the world for a food allergy and, you know, biopsies from patients with celiac. We have hundreds and hundreds of these samples in our lab today, and we use them in order to map exactly super precisely at an atomic level. What is it on the allergen that's triggering the allergy and how are you different than me? And, and, and just that, to put a fine yeah, point yeah. on that, you're saying you are literally taking samples of the guts of yep. these patients, like, mm-hmm. like tissue Biopsy biopsies, from, yep, from their and then you're able to test proteins against that At to see what... At a component level. So for those, for example, are familiar with wheat or gluten, you know, gluten as we know it includes, let's say, something like 150 proteins. We're able to look at per protein level and identify what parts of the protein are actually triggering the immune response and what part of the protein we actually want to maintain. In the case of gluten, what we want to achieve is once we've mapped the bad parts, those parts that are triggering based on those patient samples, we actually want to identify and maintain and even enhance the parts that are good for functionality, right? And the problem has always been, and food, I think you see it all the time in alternative proteins, is the seesaw between like health and functionality. Because the more we're looking at proteins away from their natural environment, out of the cow, out of the chicken, out of wheat, right? The more we often lose functionality. And when we lose functionality, we have to compensate with other things. We hurt the health of whatever we're doing, kind of. So what UCO does is really uniquely sits right at the intersection between health and functionality in the case of gluten. So we design away the parts of the protein that are triggering the samples, but we maintain all the good stuff that you want in this case for baking. And we actually have a baking lab in our lab. So we have a crazy bio lab with, you know, patient samples and synthetic biology. And then right next to it, we have a baking lab with an oven and smells of bread all day where we're taking this gluten that we've produced and literally baking nuggets to show that in our world, we now realize you only need a few gluten proteins to create incredible, amazing bread. Pasta pizza dough, that what we will show eventually is that it will be safe for anyone to eat. Now, as you look at, commercializing, production on a commercial scale. Is it molecular farming or are you producing these proteins in crops? Is it synthetic? Is it fermentation? What's the production approach? I would say both. And why? And I think this is why these approaches of protein design are so interesting because you look first at the protein, decide what characteristics you want to design for, in our case, health and functionality. 
once you have that, first of all, you can put very strong IP on it, which again, if you think about people are just trying to replicate things that are out in nature or, you know, kind of replicate and then produce, often IP is an issue. It's a hurdle. So first we have that. Now you have to decide where do you want to scale up the production? And we're doing both through fermentation, microorganisms, yeast, and, you know, and bacteria, but also through crops. You know, as you know, we're working on a wheat that should be like regular wheat in all respects, but we're designing it such that it will be safe for people with celiac insensitivity. Again, always caveat that we will have to show that in, in clinical trials. But yeah, so I think what's interesting is that you can do both. And they don't necessarily compete with each other. Each one of these has really different advantages for startups and for the supply chain as far as how fast you can get to market, regulatory hurdles, economic, uh, unit economics. But I'm really excited about the ag part of this because I think again and again, I hear from you know, seed companies and farmers and everyone in the supply chain that often is just so hard to cover costs of innovation with things like with crops and that this is a case where just the human value here is so massive. You could have really premium type of products where the value can really be trickled down across every single player in the supply chain. We get questions a lot from investors in Fallline and just in the community at large around anytime you are engineering proteins, anytime you are thinking about making modifications to crops, the regulatory topic comes up and then sort of the court of public opinion comes up and this notion of well, processed food must be bad. Engineered food must be bad. It must all be evil, kind of going back to sort of, you know, Monsanto uh, yeah. Roundup days. How do you guys think about that? And how does that manifest in both the execution strategy as well as the marketing strategy for the company? Yeah, you know, this is something that you have to, regardless of what you think, you know, about whether GMO is good or not good for you. We understand that many people feel that it's something that they're wary of. I think the way we look at it, I would divide into a few things. One, I do think things are changing. You look at a lot of the alternative proteins that are trying to get rid of the cow or get rid of, you know, they're often GMOs and people are accepting this for a really important reason, which is because they're also really important for sustainability and saving up. And you have to say, you know, some entrepreneur once told me that he feels, you know, that UCO is almost like the perfect app for, you know, the ideal case study for something like this new technology because the human value here is just so clear cut. This is about saving lives and changing people's capability to have accessibility to the world in which we live. And so at least from conversations we're having with many people who have sensitivity and celiac, like as long as we show at the gold standard that we are safe and we are very transparent about what we're doing, if we can solve this problem for them, it is a huge deal. And if we do it through kind of editing crops, I think they would be open to it. So I think one, things are shifting. You know, I think second, it's something we have to take into account in how we plan our kind of phased out, you know, phased in different products and how we think about our marketing. And I would say three, here's where we're also working really closely with the regulatory bodies. This area is very much in flux. I feel like even from when we started UCO, a lot of things have shifted, both in the US and in Europe, Britain, Canada. So I think over the long term, there are going to be a lot of new openings because I think we have no choice for all the reasons, whether it's because we look at sustainability or food security or health. We're going to have to embrace these technologies. And I think the important thing is to do it responsibly, human value first in mind, and be really clear about what you're doing and transparent about it. One of the things that's so cool about what you're doing, UCO, is compared to a lot of food companies where consumer preference is such a complicated, mysterious thing, in contrast to 
when we invest upstream of the farm, where superior technology that improves resource efficiency always wins, it gets fuzzier as you get closer to the consumer. In your case, if somebody has the option between food with an allergen or food without the allergen, 10 times out of 10, they're going to go without, you know, not eat something that makes them sick or die. So, you know, in food companies, you have, say, when you fall on rough times, you might bring in Kim Kardashian to help you out. I can't imagine, for the celebrities listening, uh, is there a role? (laughs) (laughs) For sure. First of all, we already have to say, not celebrity-wise, but we have a really strong, you know, advisory board of very prominent people that are important in this field. But yes, of course. And I think, again, as long as I would say what drives me and Uko and all our team all the time is patience, you know, and kind of the humans for which we are creating this first. So making sure that what we do is always, as I said, transparent, with the gold standard of safety, and that any partner that we engage, like, meets that criteria and, you know, builds trust with these communities. We work a lot with some of the patient organizations in these spaces. And yes, we'd be super happy and already are working on engaging People are just, you know, thought leaders and celebrities in this space. As you think about the effect that your business has on the people around you, it isn't just the consumers. Ag is an industry that's heavily integrated. You know, these are systems where, you know, every element of production affects everything else. So, you know, how does what you're doing affect, you know, folks upstream and downstream of UCO? This is a great question. And also here to say we're a little early since we're still in the research phases, the development phases of the wheat crop. And we've talked to you guys about this too. Like something we think a lot about is how very early on to start engaging with all the relevant partners. Because again, this is a partnership. This is, you know, a fragmented supply chain on the one hand. And on the other hand, everyone's very tied together. And I think it's critical for UCO to work really closely and build a lot of trust very early on, get a lot of feedback and input and involve all the different players across the supply chain. As I said before, I think what's unique here is that you suddenly have a crop that you can almost, you know, putting aside kind of the identity preservation needs, which has become more common and mm-hmm. acceptable across kind of farming. You can almost grow it like regular wheat or commodity. And yet it's a very high value with proven willingness to pay in a market, right? This isn't something we have to go out there and show that there's an interest. People who have gluten sensitivity and celiac today are purchasing gluten-free foods. And often those foods are far less healthy, not yummy, not always, but often, and cost a lot of money, right? So somewhere in that spectrum of costs, we can fit in with a product that's very healthy, extremely functional and yummy. It should be equal to everything we love in regular gluten, and yet hopefully can be produced at relatively low cost of production. And that arbitrage that in between can really be shared across the supply chain. So I think it's a unique opportunity for everyone, but I think we're going to have to work hard and get everyone on board and really partner in the right way. Well, that's one of the, you know, what you mentioned at the outset, that it's not just the affected individual, it's the entire family relationship ecosystem around them, the household that's purchasing food is purchasing based on that exactly. individual's uh, and, the, and the friends. But how often has anyone done a birthday party and you always have to remind yourself, oh, did I buy the gluten-free rolls? Am I taking into account in the pizza, you know, the kid that can eat it? Right. What is that kid's experience like that they always have to either not have something or have something that's very different? Restaurants, cross-contamination for... CPGs and ingredient players. And the interesting thing here is on both sides of the coin, I think people who produce gluten have been blocked out of gluten-free, right? Even for farmers and kind of people who are in the wheat industry, this is a thing because 
there are a lot of people who really want to eat gluten-free, whether for health case reasons or sensitivity reasons. And you can't access it if what you're doing is gluten. And on the other hand, if you've been doing gluten-free, you're losing out on the ability to have something that's like really fun. Nothing works like gluten. Nothing. Right. There is no other protein that does what gluten does. And by the way, it's the reason it's used today also in alternative proteins, alternative meat, because it gives you that net and kind of like really nice texture. Nothing can achieve that beyond gluten. And I think we have to somehow find a balance between these. And going back to this idea of protein design, the whole idea is can we look and say now as human beings with all the tech capabilities that we have, what is it that we really want to design for? Like, what are the characteristics? Not be limited by what exists, but really start to think, what do we want in order for humanity to be healthier and safer and, you know, more sustainable? So I want to back up a second. When we started out, you gave us a bit of your background. Protein design was not part of the educational <laughs> background that you described. Tell us a little bit about the technical team that, no, that you course. have founded the company with and the backgrounds that you've brought together here to allow for this development. Great. I'm so happy I get to talk about this because, you know, my co-founder, his name is Professor Yanaya Fran. We've actually been best friends since our undergrad days. And Uko is the origin story of Uko. And Uko is based a lot on his tech developments over many years. So he's also originally from Israel and kind of has a long and really successful scientific career, starting off in the worlds of biophysics and bioinformatics. He got his PhD at Columbia University in, in the States, stayed there for a while, moved back to Israel, opened up a lab in one of our biggest universities, and then started another company some years back called Biologic Design, which is really in the drug development drug space. And I think it's an interesting journey to even see there how interdisciplinary and kind of connecting dots in ways that maybe we wouldn't have done like 10 years ago led to what we're doing Nuco because Yanai for many years was really looking at, and I'm really simplifying this, right? But like biomolecular recognition, how do you create better targeting between proteins, which is very much the way that pharma has looked at drug development for a long time. But at some point, he's like, what if I flip that around? And I actually would look for, because he has such deep knowledge and kind of the way proteins interact, what if I flipped around and said, what are the cases in which we don't want any interactions between proteins? We do not want them to recognize each other. Mm. And without going to the nitty gritty, that's what you want to achieve in order to stop an allergic reaction in our body. So I think we came together. And when he told me what he'd been working on, the first proof of concept, he was on sabbatical leave at Harvard and was kind of testing out some of these ideas. And we realized there's a huge use case in food allergy. And so we decided we were starting UCO. And I think that interdisciplinary approach of bringing together, you know, his deep computational AI capabilities. And we slowly together with our CTO and others on the team who, you know, our CTO brought a lot of protein design and protein engineering knowledge into the company, Moshe um, Ben David. And kind of my VC and business and policy experience kind of had that interdisciplinary outlook on how to solve a problem like this. Yeah, that's great. Because you had the Innovation Endeavors experience looking at Valley technology companies all over the place, if you compare the typical startup dynamic and culture that you encountered here in the U.S., how would you contrast that to what you see in UCO, but then maybe more broadly speaking in the Israeli market? You know, I have to say first, in both places, you see incredible teams and talent. I mean, you know, this is Silicon Valley and we know the kind of talent and people that you have here. There's a generalized, you know, kind of statement about Israelis that where they tend to be a little bit more rule breakers. So you kind of get people at a very young age who on the one hand are like, you know, have gone to the best university, have really studied technology, but are really interdisciplinary in their other skills. And I found that to be a little bit different 
than what happens here when you get kind of younger employees, right? Younger teams, ones that maybe just finished their PhDs. Really, at that point, they mostly have had only academic experience. In Israel, someone who just finished his or her PhD or postdoc will tend, and this is, again, generalized, it really depends who, will tend to have had lots of other experiences up to that point. So kind of get a little bit of a different maturity and perspective. Overall. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. It's one that another Israeli startup that we back talking about his own personal story after having served in the military and then going back to school, his perspective had completely changed. And, you know, high school grades don't matter. It's really about who you are as a human. You've actually had to function in the world under duress, you know, in like real stressful situations that are real life. And that gives you a perspective going into further academics that puts the whole thing into a broader perspective of, okay, how do I take what I'm learning and think about how I use it practically in the world. Totally. I would say the challenge for Israeli companies is usually off, you know, the distance from the market. Israel will never be a market for any company. We're so small. We're such a small country, you know, and that creates a hurdle. I think in biotech, that hurdle is a little bit smaller, less of a challenge because you have more time to market, a lot of IP in place. It's usually deep tech. Things move slower. It's not about a B2C approach necessarily. And you have this talent that's like, you know, we have such amazing science-based and tech-based universities. And as I said, very diverse talent pools. So I think actually Israel has a really good advantage in the worlds of bio. And you're starting to see it more and more now. And you've built a terrific roster of investors. But what's your observation generally around access to capital of Israeli startups versus U.S. startups? It's getting a lot better. There are more and more funds in Israel now that have raised large funds and also have had more and more experience investing in these new type of companies, whether on the software side or in the biotech side. So I think it's gotten better. However, and I always say this to founders who I speak with, I still think, especially I'd say from Series A and beyond, it's really important and helpful to have investors from the U.S. and beyond Israel, or at least a mix, because at the end, again, your market is in the U.S. no matter what, or Asia or somewhere like that. And you need someone who helps you access your customer, you know, whether it's B2B or B2C and really understand kind of that next phase of the company. Yeah, that's a good jumping off point to just get your perspective on as a founding CEO. What are you looking for from your investors and how do you differentiate sort of good investors from sort of ho-hum <laughs> investors? I want to just start with the honest answer because I think yes, investors always ask this and I think startups need money. So yep. let's start with that. Good. Like when you're raising, you want money and that's what you need, you know? So I think that's number one. Second, I think especially in biotech and what we do, we want people to understand the journey because it's long and it definitely has its ups and downs. Biology can be very uncertain and it can cause like delays or shifts or changes and you have to have... For us, we really want investors who understand what we are doing and what the journey looks like so that they're really partners on down that road. And I would say three, you know, people are really direct and helpful in pointing us in certain directions or giving us their feedback, but also, you know, feel and are confident in us as a team and in us leading the company. And I think when you have that trusting relationship and you can build that, that's the best possible combination because you have honest, real effective conversations about what the company needs and what are the questions. At the same time, they're trust-driven and they're allowing the management team to lead. So I guess that's very personality kind of based. You know, I would say 
of course, resources are good beyond the money, like network and connections. And I think that's amazing. And for us, you guys and other investors have been everything I just mentioned and definitely on the connections and on just accessing quick expertise when we need it. But I also, when I was on the VC side, and I always tell this to my investor friends, you also want founders that can do that also on their own if they need. You don't want founders that need that, right. but that they know to ask for it if it's faster through the investor. And I think you guys for us have been amazing in that sense because you have such a breadth, you know, anywhere from when we were thinking about fermentation to farmers to like an ingredient company, to, you know, to like, I mean, the breadth of type of conversations we can have with you and the kind of access to the network has been really helpful and important for us. And so when I think about that, you know, it's also making sure, as I said, that investors understand what you're doing and are in that world. Right? That's the fun part of the job, too. Yeah. <laughs> kind of putting the pieces together, connecting the dots. Yeah, and seeing the impact on the company. A lot of your intros and some of our other investors, you know, interests have had impact on what we do. Yeah, that's great. As a founder, any advice that you would pass on to folks listening to this who are thinking about starting up a company in the biotech space? I would say do it because we need smart people solving these big problems, really. Like I remember as an investor, I get most excited about amazing teams that came in and were actually trying to tackle like really important stuff. I'd get really bummed sometimes when you'd see like these incredibly smart teams kind of just solving a small problem or something that wasn't going to really help the world a lot. So I'd say, go do it. Second, I think in biology, you have to walk this thin line between, on the one hand, knowing that biology is uncertain and where you start is not where you're going to be two years down the line as far as what you think you're going to be doing. You know, if I look back at our first deck that we presented, when we raised our first round, it was literally me and a few slides. We had nothing except some basic IP that we had put on, you know, the technology. And when I look back at it now, it has nothing to do really with what we do today. And we couldn't have known that, right? So you have to be open to that. But on the other hand, because biology is a long haul and it requires a real understanding of what you're trying to achieve and how you actually commercialize it or make it into something that's, you know, operationalized in the real world, I would take the time to think through that. Make sure you have all the experts around you that can help you upfront, like think about what you're going to have to de-risk, how realistic is it, what it's going to require. Even as, again, knowing that it will change, it shouldn't stop you from doing anything. It may end up that it'll be faster or easier. It'll end up doing something else, but have that balance between a little bit of realism and tons of entrepreneurial optimism. That's great. That's awesome advice. <laughs> I should let the audience know that five minutes before Anat started recording with us today was when she learned that she would be recording with us today. And, and uh, that wasn't the intent. Um, but I must say, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with fun. us. Um, you spoke as if you had been thinking about this for weeks and weeks. It just goes to show how embedded the mission is in your mind, the clarity of thought you have around what you're trying to accomplish super confidence inspiring to us. We couldn't be happier to be partnered with you on the journey here. So thank you so much for taking some time with us today. No, thank you. We feel extremely lucky to have you guys as partners. So thank, thank you, you for having much. me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Clay Mitchell and Eric O'Brien. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about agriculture and the future of our food system, please visit us on the web at fall-line-capital.com slash fieldnotes. You can link to our other podcast episodes and read our latest thoughts on the cutting edge of farming and technology. 